Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science and the Pursuit of Great Beer, Homebrew All-Stars, and of course, the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing. It's almost here, June 7th. Now, between the two of us, we have 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. So on today's episode, well, today's episode might as well be called the feedback episode, because thanks to the last couple of episodes, y'all have some feedback for us. So we're going to be digging in. Yep. There's been some interesting issues to discuss, and we've made a lot of mistakes, or one of us has made a lot of mistakes. So we got a lot to talk about. And then, of course, you know, we'll dig into the beer news. We'll give you some, well, some new things to brew with. And then we're going to head to the lounge where we're going to sit down. We're going to talk to Matt Van Wyck of Ale Song Brewing Company, a.k.a. Denny's Local. That's right. All about, well, just about how his brewery works and the beers that he makes and why they're just so darn tasty. And then off we go to the quick tip. Some of your questions with something other than beer, and we get you on to your day. But before we do all that and come back and tell you about a bunch of parties, please listen to these messages from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodophore. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Well, hey, thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, if you have any chance to interact with them, tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. It does them good to know their money is being well spent. And of course, it can't be an episode of Experimental Brewing without us telling you, well, you missed an episode of The Brew Files if you didn't listen last week. Episode 59 of The Brew Files came out called Keeping Cool, where Denny and I will walk you through as many different ways that we think that we know of to keep your fermentation under control as we head into these warmer months of the year. So go and give it a listen and tell us what we missed. You won't be the only one. <laughs> yeah, man, that seems to be the way it always works. And now we're going to tell you about a whole bunch of really fun events coming up. The first one is called Brewing Man that takes place at Mecca Grade Estate Malt in Madras, Oregon, May 24th through 27th. That's like a Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be a huge gathering of brewers and distillers celebrating terroir-based beverages and inspired brewing methods. 
There are going to be speakers. I'll be one of them. There's going to be a five-course catered farm-to-table dinner. There's going to be tons and tons of beer. It's going to be a great, great fun event. So if you're interested and you think you'd like to go, go to mechagrade.com and look for info on getting tickets, and we hope to see you there. And then, of course, there's HomebrewCon coming late June. So June 27th through the 29th is the dates of the actual HomebrewCon. But we hope that we're going to see you on the evening of June 26th in Providence, Rhode Island. Because once again, we're partnering with our good friends at Brewcraft USA slash Country Malt Group to, well, throw you a party. There's going to be beer. Details are forthcoming because, look, we're beer people. We're not that good at planning. <laughs> but there will be beer. There'll be giveaways and much, much more, along with even buses to get you back and forth from the convention center where the conference itself is happening. So once again, come and join us on June 26th, Providence, Rhode Island, and we'll have a beer together. Stay tuned for details because there will be a lot more coming. But uh, just remember, we want to make it easy for you to get to that party and have a great time the night before HomebrewCon starts. And speaking of parties with more details to come. Yes, the next one coming up is Hop and Brew School up in uh, Yakima, Washington, put on by Yakima Chief Hops. Uh, the dates are August 30th through September 2nd, over Labor Day weekend. There will be speakers. There will be tours of hop fields. There will be tours of hop processing facilities. There will be a great party held at Bale Breaker Brewing, which is one of my favorite places in all the world. Great beer, gorgeous location in the middle of a hop field. And we'll be recording a live podcast there talking to some of the speakers. So uh, we'll be getting you a lot more information on that. But save the dates, August 30th through September 2nd. Yeah, the important part is you're going to be able to party with us as we celebrate episode 100 of the main show. <sighs> Ta-da! That makes me feel even older than I am. That's almost four years of podcasting for the main show. So come oh, come man. to Yakima, Washington. We can't promise that you'll be able to swim in a pool of hops like Scrooge McDuck diving into a pool of coins, but we might give you a chance. Uh, I, I doubt it. They have signs up all over the place saying hops are food products, no jumping. Well, fine. <laughs> Ruin my fantasy. I mean, okay, look. Look at it this way. Do you want to dry hop your beer with hops that have been in somebody's underwear? I don't know. Depends if I'm making a funky beer or not. <laughs> I should have expected that from you. Uh, all right. Now, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, brewswag.com, uh, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Wings of Rescue, a killer all-volunteer 501c3 organization with... Uh, Pilots who fly dogs from shelters where they'll probably be euthanized to no-kill shelters. And in our terms, man, that's about as good as it gets. Kick in a few bucks by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Click on the Patreon link, and we will pass it along to Wings of Rescue. And before we get started with the rest of the program, just a real quick shout-out to you know, a listener of the podcast slash former guest to Nick Rona. So what we wanted you to do is uh, offer up your pears, pints, Etc. Whatever it is that you want to your favorite universal power to help. Uh, Nick's son was in a in a bad traffic accident. Uh, he got hit by a drunk driver and is in the hospital. Things are looking uh, up, but at one point in time, it looked like uh, his son might have lost his foot. So let's take this not only as a chance to well, you know, offer up a, a, a prayer or two, but also to remember: don't be an idiot. Know your limits. Get a designated driver. 
Or in this day and age, it's almost impossible for you not to have an excuse to not take a Uber and Lyft. Or a cab where you can't get an Uber or Lyft. Yeah. In other words, be smart about your drinking. Don't cause some poor kid his his foot potentially. Yeah. Or anybody, anything. Just don't be an idiot. Yep. And now it's time to get on to what feels like it's going to be the bulk of this show. It's time for Feedback. And our feedback, we're going to cover a couple of different topics uh, today. And once again, coming back into the episode is the whole dry hopping slash hop creep uh, issue that we first reported on a couple of times and has become arguably the hottest topic available in hop science at the moment. Our first piece of feedback comes from Stefan Wiesadel, uh, and I'm sure I probably just butchered that. And he comes from Cape Town, South Africa. He says, Hey guys, I'm a few episodes back, but I wanted to give my two cents on the phenomenon of gravity drop with dry hopping. I own a brewery brand and contract my brewers at a relatively large local brewery here in Cape Town, South Africa, and Stefan's uh, brewery is a little wolf. We always see this phenomenon with my hoppy American-style wheat beer. We ferment with a neutral yeast strain, and once it reaches terminal gravity, stable for 72 hours, we dry hop it at about 4 grams per liter with mosaic. Within 24 hours, we start to see the gravity drop again, and it usually stabilizes about three or four days later with a drop of approximately four to five gravity points. We've seen the same phenomenon on all batches from the 1500 liter batches we started on right up to the 8,000 liter batches we have done. We also use pretty sophisticated equipment to measure gravity, etc. So it is not user error. We notice it in all of our beers that we dry hop a mosaic, but not all dry hop beers. So at least for us, it appears to be varietal specific. So that's kind of interesting, uh, point of data from uh, Stefan and I I buy that there's probably a variety impact right you know different different amount of uh, diastase and different hops you know everything else changes yeah I'll, I'll go as far as to say that it's entirely possible but you know I, I would need more proof to see that that's it specifically mm-hmm. um, and you know in, in that regard I'm kind of conducting my own little test on this right now I have a uh, batch of IPA that uh, was had been in primary for a couple weeks, and uh, I decided that I would see if I could actually make hop creep happen. But I'm using my regular brewing process. I, I don't dry hop in primary. I crashed it. I transferred the beer to a CO2 purged secondary fermenter, added five ounces of uh, veteran blend pellets to it, I'm going to let that sit for a week at uh, 70 to 72 degrees and then crash it again and uh, remeasure the gravity and see if I was able to experience hop creep. And that that five ounces of hops, I, as I recall, that came out to like five or six grams per liter. So I went with a fairly high hop level to try and make it happen. Uh, I'm curious to see if maybe... Uh, Crashing it first, uh, dropped enough yeast out to reduce or negate the effect, but I don't know. So we'll see in a couple of weeks. It's always fun to get your own observations. Yeah, right. You know, and, and I'm not sure that I'm going to learn anything. I mean, what I may learn is how not to get hop creep by, you know, cold crashing at first, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Next topic is actually on Chris Wilburn's little Ripa oxidation. So you remember we did a tasting with Chris during the last brewery segment. And he had that puzzling oxidation that happened to the set of bottles for the Little Ripa. And we had a response coming from listener Mike Thompson, who said, I was listening to last week's podcast, and I had a thought about why Chris's Little Ripa may have tasted so different after kegging. Because remember, this is what we kind of went back and forth on. We kind of decided, I think, between us that it must have been a bottling thing, like when it transferred into the bottle. And what Mike continues on to say is he mentioned that he fills his kegs with sanitizer 
and then does a full purge with CO2. Is there any chance they accidentally left some sanitizer in the bottom of the keg while purging? If his dip tube was bent or cut short, there could have been some liquid left behind. Would a few ounces of star sand or iodoform make a difference in the flavor of five gallons of beer? I know this is a long shot, but I thought I'd throw it out there. And it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I've definitely done some kegging into beers that have had some leftover sanitizer in them and not noticed an impact. But then again, I don't know if I would have been looking for it. Yeah. Number one, I'm 99% certain that star sand wouldn't do it. I think if there was enough iodophore in there to have an effect, you'd be able to taste that pretty easily. And, you know, having tasted that beer, I just can't imagine that either one of those would have been what we tasted. Can you? No, I can't. So it's it's interesting, but puzzling type things. I'm still sticking to something happening during the transfer into the bottles. That's yeah, me. that that makes the most sense to me, but, you know, I, it may remain a mystery for the rest of our lives. <sighs> mysteries, mysteries. And going to our next piece of uh, feedback here, we, uh, a couple of pieces on uh, David Buckner's overcarbonation question. So listeners will remember that at the end of the last episode in the Q&A, we had a question come in from David Buckner, who was talking about his beers being uh, consistently overcarbonated and wondering if his gravity drop had anything to do with it. So we had a couple of different ones uh, come in. Leandro Minor, he wrote in to say, with regards to listeners' overcarbonation issue, I was a bit surprised with the low final gravity on most of the examples, which made me think of a possible contamination that could lead slowly to overcarbonation. Uh, it's impossible, uh, but I think if I remember correctly, David didn't mention anything about a, a contaminant flavor. Yeah, so, right. I, that's that's why I recall it too. But of course, that is always a consideration in that situation. Paul Nichols wrote in to say, overcarbonation, what scale is he using? Perhaps use a different scale. I had one that had an off-center weight that showed a lower weight. Or wait three weeks instead of two. It might be weak yeast health. Or he also is guessing infection, so try switching to iodophore instead of uh, star sand. And how is he sanitizing? And then also on the regulator question, just to throw in something different, he says the check flow valve should face up and down, vertical, not horizontal, just to make sure that happens too. Bjorn Bjornsson also uh, wrote in and he said, I was somewhat surprised that you couldn't figure out the reasons for a bottle conditioned beer lacking carbonation. Did I miss something? I was walking the dog and wasn't paying much attention to your answer. It is really straightforward in my mind. Do a gravity reading of the finished bottle of beer. If the gravity is higher than the final gravity, then there is a yeast slash fermentation issue. If the gravity is slightly lower than the final gravity, then the cap is leaking. And I think we did mention that the caps were probably leaking in these. Yeah. So... Yeah, lots of lots of different things uh, out there to possibly cause things, but it is what it is. Another yeah. mystery. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, that's the interesting thing about trying to diagnose these issues is that we have just one little bit of information and we're trying to apply uh, years of experience to thinking of anything. And, you know, without without repeated tests or having that beer right in front of us, we're just making a wild guess. And then final piece of feedback topic, and there are a lot of, a lot of pieces of feedback on this one, was the cooling episode, Last Brew Files. As we mentioned, episode 59, Keeping Cool, was all about how do you keep your fermentations cool. And I think the there were a couple of the easy uh, responses out there. And the most popular sort of response that we got was of the sort that we got from uh, Nicholas Guy Salmon, who said, just use quake yeast and you're good. Yeah, yes. uh, not for me, thank you. I mean, and, I mean... You know, I, I I hate to brew a beer based around ingredients I'm forced to use. I would rather figure out how to use the ingredients I want to use. But man, that's seasonal brewing. That's like being old school. 
but we also saw Mike Johnson's response who was saying things like, that's why I only make Belgians in the warm weather. And of course we saw plenty of responses with people saying, that's why I make Saisons then. And Hey, dirty secret. I also make my meads in the summer. Um, <laughs> Jeff, uh, Jeff Renner, the famous home brewer, he wrote in to say, uh, that he wanted to make those of us who live in warmer climes a little jealous. And he says, those of us in the North with basements have no need for this except for loggers. My basement closets on the outside walls are even okay for fermenting loggers in the winter, about 45 degrees. Well, Jeff, that's dandy, but I don't have to worry about winter. Yeah, really. And I just want to give a shout out to Jeff. I've known him for many, many years. And I want to say, Jeff, uh, I'm really pleased that uh, you're listening to us because I know that we're wacky. Or for homebrewers who haven't been around for a long period of time and never were part of the HBD, the oft-lamented, wonderful HBD, uh, you may not be aware, but Jeff Renner is the center of the homebrew universe. That's right. That's right. So uh, everybody measures their location based on where Jeff lives. Yeah, apparent degrees Renner. Uh and then other people also chimed in to include their favorite solutions. Uh, like, for instance, we talked about immersion atemperators. And I mentioned the SS Brewtech FTSS. I think I got that right. Uh, immersion atemperator. And apparently Anvil has one as well for about $100 so that you could cycle glycol solution or ice water through it. And there's also a company, uh, Ball & Keg out of Denver, that have a very simple immersion atemperator made out of a stainless steel coil for uh, $30 to $40 and it just fits into a stopper and goes right into your carboy. So that's an easy solution if you want to follow that one. And then uh, Daniel Tysinger wrote in about his favorite way, just finished the most recent brew files and wanted to mention something you all didn't get to. My method of maintaining fermentation temperature is using a cool brewing insulated bag. It's a big insulated bag that you simply put your carboy in with enough space to add frozen water bottles. I use two liter soda bottles or half gallon milk jugs. It has a big opening at the top that is open with a zipper. So it's easy to take bottles in and out. You can also press it down flat after use. So it's easy to store as well. And it only costs about $60. I've had mine for a few years and I love it. I wouldn't recommend it if you're looking to maintain exact temperatures, but it will stay within a couple of degrees. It is great for ales and warm fermented lagers. You can also do traditional lagering, but it's a bit more involved. And so, yeah, the, this jacket is very much kind of like the brew jacket that you, that we see with the brew jacket immersion circulator that we talked about. And it's essentially a big cooler bag. So very much like what we talked about with the ice cube coolers that people are doing. This is just a, a soft, flexible version of that same concept. But I think the, uh, the overall thing is there's a lot of different ways that people are out there uh, trying to skin the cat that is keeping your beer cool during the summer. So lots of different ways to do it. Yeah. And, and people, are get, people are getting really creative with some of these solutions too. So I think that the big takeaway from here is – Find one of these methods that works for you and use it, and your beer and your friends will thank you for it. All right. And as we must from time to time, we must admit that we're wrong, and we have to go to the Correctional Department of Corrections. And, well, we have a couple in here. So the first one comes from a Reddit listener, Probabilistic World, who says about uh, the UK Brewing Evidence uh, article that we talked about in the last episode. Denny had made a comment that, you know, back in the medieval times, people drank beer instead of drinking water because it was safer. And what the probabilistic world says is when you're talking about the evidence of Iron Age brewing in Great Britain, Danny says something along the lines of they drank beer because the water was dangerous. Please stop perpetuating this myth. Ancient people definitely had a sense of safe water sources. Uh, this blog post by a food historian, uh, and we'll include the link, gives a thorough look at the evidence for this claim and against the beer was safer hypothesis. Drew, as a history buff, you should be particularly attuned to how bad information is spread around as common knowledge. 
And before Denny gets his say, and I'm just going to say, yeah, I caught that in real time, but we were moving so fast that by the time I thought to say anything, we were well past that topic. And well, show flow matters. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and that might very well be the case. Uh, there is a wealth of evidence out there that says that uh, the they didn't drink the water and it was beer. It, it could all be apocryphal. Uh, I need to look into this farther, and I will. And uh, there we go. Yeah, the blog post is actually really good because, I mean, it's pulling up, like, ancient Roman historians and medieval historians all talking about, like, you know, knowing about where the good water was. But this also goes into the reason why I, there's always the disclaimer that I put in whenever we talk about beer history. Uh, beer history is stories told by beer drinkers to other beer drinkers. And let's face it, sometimes the story is more fun and also a good <laughs> excuse to drink beer. After all, it was yeah, good enough in the Dark right. Ages. And the, uh, I think this is the rarest one I think we've ever had, which is a correction on our something other than beer segment. <laughs> and uh, Chris writes in uh, to basically say that uh, we had recommended uh, the Wrecking Crew documentary because Hal Blaine uh, had just passed away. Uh, Hal Blaine was the longtime drummer of the Wrecking Crew. And yeah, I, I'd made a comment that uh, the Wrecking Crew played on a lot of records, including Motown records. And uh, obviously that is wrong. Chris points that out. Uh, I knew that. I've seen the Funk Brothers movie, and those were the guys that actually played on the Motown records. Uh, James Jamerson was like one of my idols on bass for years. So anyway, it's, it's one of those things that I knew. I had a little uh, brain slip there. So credit where credit is due. Funk Brothers on Motown, uh, the Wrecking Crew on all those wonderful pop records. Yep. So there you go. Sometimes we even get it wrong when it's not beer. <laughs> I, we're, we're, so, we're amazing, aren't we? Man, which, we can get anything wrong. I, I consider it a great A, uh, <laughs> wonderful talent. So I think all of this feedback, all of these corrections, all of these announcements and all that stuff has made me thirstier than sin. So I need a beer. I don't know how thirsty sin is, but I could use a beer too. So we're going to take a quick break here while we wander over to the pub and we'll be right back. The Wild Rustic Spring Private Collection from Y-East offers a selection of yeast and bacteria cultures characteristic of Belgian and sour styles to pair with the new season. 3725 Beer de Garde, 3031 Saison Brett Blend, and 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis are available April through June at your local homebrew shop, exclusively from our private culture collection. These are the strains that exemplify the beers of Europe in Cezanne, Lambic Styles, Goes, Brett Beers, and more. And now you can use them to create world-class beers worldwide. No matter the direction you take these wild rustic cultures, they'll become your new tradition. Find out more about which styles pair best with this release at yeastlab.com. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Music 
Welcome back. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever in the world you are. And we are having a couple beers. I think Drew is having something kind of unusual there, huh? Well, yeah, I I was just literally in Florida because, well, you know, sometimes you have to go take care of uh, family. And I had to go take care of uh, my mom after hip surgery. So she's uh, she joined the uh, DennyCon Memorial Surgery Club. Yep, she's a hippie now, too. <laughs> She'd been a hippie her entire life. Um, now she's just a robo-hippie. Um, and, you know, as one does when one is doing that, sometimes you just need a small break. And uh, I hooked up with a couple of fine folks that we actually first met in Asheville. And I went over to Rock Pit Brewing Company in Orlando. And, boy, can I say, there are actually breweries in Orlando. Yay! Um, and... I have to admit, they had a number of beers on, on tap that were wonderful, but I think the one that took the most edge of pain off of everything about the, the experience was their Detonator Doppelbach, which is a big 11% chewy malt beast. So I think we're going to have Rock Pit on before too long because uh, they're a brewery slash homebrew shop, and those are always kind of fun. And they have kind of a very unique uh, brewing rig, but they had a, a they just had this really wonderful, chewy, uh, earthy, warm Doppelbach, which admittedly does not seem like the kind of thing that you want on a warm spring day in Florida, but it still hit the, just hit it right on the head. Cool. And uh, for you, well, sir? you know, I've been doing a lot of traveling recently. After uh, we went to Asheville for the Brew Your Own Boot Camp, I came home for 12 hours and hopped another plane down to Tampico, Mexico for a week to go judge at a huge competition there. Um, Lots of beer. I mean, it was not uncommon to be judging 50 beers in a day, which for me is like almost beyond my capacity. So by the end of it, I was like doing a day or two without beer. And on my final flight home, I decided it was time to have a beer with dinner. And when I perused the choices on the plane, it looked like the best choice was the Breckenridge Hop Peak IPA. Uh, it was just delicious. I popped open that can, and this wonderful aroma, uh, orange tangerine lime came out at me. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, I didn't know at the time it was owned by ABI, but, you know, I was able to enjoy the beer without any uh, prejudices based on that. Uh, it had like a really crystal clear color, a nice firm bitterness, definitely in the West Coast IPA camp in that regard, but the aroma, they use Simcoe and Citra along with some cryo powder, and the aroma was just to die for. I absolutely love that beer. Uh, being an ABI beer, I may not go seek it out again, but if it pops up in front of me, I'm going to be helpless to avoid drinking it. Sometimes you just have to be drink the beer that you're with. <laughs> that's right, and that's exactly what I did. It, it was a good one. All right, and so now into the beer news. We've got, well, a couple of changeovers, acquisitions, and at least one unintended consequence of charity. And so we'll start with the the big news that actually was hitting as we're recording this, kind of back-to-back, is the first one is that Ninkasi has been bought. Uh, they, they sold a, a majority share to, well, a person who's been around the brewing industry for a very, very long time. Danny, you want to talk about it? Yeah, I, I will, because uh, I, I kind of know the people involved in this story. Uh, Ninkasi was started uh, oh, a few years ago. I can't remember exactly how long. 
when uh, Jamie Floyd, who had been brewing for Steelhead and a bunch of other people, ran into a guy named Nikos Ridge in a uh, bar, and they both started talking about how they'd like to open a brewery. Nikos had just uh, gotten a business degree from the University of Oregon. They got together, opened up Ninkasi, started very small in a rented warehouse space, and by this point they have built a gorgeous facility that takes up probably like a couple blocks in the uh, what's called the fermentation district here in Eugene. They really sparked a revitalization of the whole area. They're very community-oriented and make some really nice beers on top of it. But beyond the beer, I've always uh, attributed a lot of their success to Nikos being a brilliant businessman. And what has happened now is that they have sold a majority stake in Ninkasi to a company, Legacy Brewing, owned by a guy named Don Bryant, who formerly was the CEO at Yakima Chief. Uh, I've had a chance to meet Don. He seems like a very nice, very together guy. And this is not going to be like a, like an ABI buyout or something like that. They're putting together this uh, kind of consortium. They want to find two other breweries the size of Ninkasi. I think that Ninkasi is like, what, about the 20th largest in the U.S., something like that? The, the 35th largest craft brewery in 2018. Okay, great. So they want to find a couple other breweries about that size and then some other smaller ones to kind of like form this whole kind of like brewing consortium uh, that they're going to put together. I'm going to be real curious to see where this goes because the people at Ninkasi are great. Uh, Kylie Gwynn, who has been on the Brew Files before, just recently started working there. And, uh, you know, like I said, Jamie and Nikos are great guys. Don seems like a great guy. This has a lot of potential to it from what I can see. Yeah, and so this is, again, this is another one of these sort of... Um one of these financial equity firm type uh, setups where they're essentially building brewers collective. So the big ones out there, I think the two biggest ones are the Canarchy group, which used to be the Oscar blues group, which has cigar city, Oscar blues, uh, deep Ellum, three weavers and a, a couple of others. And then the other one would be, um, artisans brewers, which is, uh, like Southern tier and victory. And what I thought was interesting about what they were saying at legacy breweries is they want to get those three 90,000-barrel ex-breweries, right? You know, so I think Nikasi's big enough to do 100,000 barrels per year, but they actually slipped back just a little bit last year. Yeah. And they want to get three of those across the country, geographically centered. And then the part that actually made me scratch my head was, it's not that they want to get a couple of additional breweries. They're saying their, their target is to get 10 or 15 geographically adjacent breweries to use those bigger breweries as kind of a hub. So, I mean, they're talking about, you know, say, 33 to, was that, 48 breweries that they want to eventually collect under this kind of umbrella, which is mind-boggling. So it's, it's ambitious, inter- isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it is the very, very definition of ambitious. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to the brave new world of, uh, well, what's going to happen here with all these breweries? And it makes sense, I mean... Uh, Ninkasi, I think they started brewing, if I remember correctly, it's like 2006. Yeah, that sounds so, about right, yeah. So 12, 12 years with a lot of growth, and I can kind of understand some people kind of going, okay, I've been working my butt off for 12 years, so maybe I can do something that will help me make things a little bit easier. So it's interesting. Well, and if I recall, Nikos had left Ninkasi kind of like semi-retired and then came back and took the helm again. So 
I I see his hand in a lot of this. No, I wouldn't be surprised. So, but uh, on from that uh, segment of buyout to the one that really I think took everybody by surprise today as we, as we're recording this is Friday is that Stone has announced that they have sold their Berlin brewery to Brewdog of all people, and I'm I'm really kind of surprised about it. But Greg Cook announced this on on the Stone's Stone Company's blog and titled it about you know like how you know the the project was uh, too big too fast uh, too soon and with a, a little bit more than a, a hefty dose of uh, hubris to it and yeah he he pretty much blamed everybody but himself didn't he well no i think he i think he uh you know he said uh, i mean it was like his exact words were basically ultimately our project in berlin turned out to be a bit too aggressively big and bold a little too far from home for Stone to continue to operate. Meaning, meaning that the German people weren't smart enough to drink our beer. I suppose that's one way. I mean, that's it, that's that's what it sounded like to me when you take into account uh, the other things he had said surrounding it. You have to remember that when they opened the brewery there, they had this huge pile of uh, German beer bottles stacked up. Greg mm-hmm. came out driving a forklift and dropped a giant rock on uh, all those German beer bottles as a, an indication of what he thought that he was going to be doing to the German beer market. Well, it's, it's just interesting because, I mean, I mean, this was a big, big project, and Mitch, actually, Mitch Steele had you know, put out a note this morning saying that he was kind of sad to see this happen because this was, like, Greg's big passion project. Like, this was the thing he was super excited about. But, yeah, I mean, it's it was a, uh, a risky maneuver to try and go in and tell the Germans, hey, I know more about beer than you do, or at least what modern beer should be. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, he saw the beer market declining in Germany and figured what would save it was American IPA. And, you know, it's, it's a gutsy move. Uh, I, have, I have absolutely nothing against Stone whatsoever. I would have loved to see this work because it was a gorgeous location. But, I, you know, I think that maybe they misunderstood the market there. Well, and of course, you know, if you go and you look at the reactions, you had a lot of people saying that the beer was coming, the, the beer that was coming out of there wasn't the best product that Stone put out. Also, the uh, former gas factory they had taken over and turned into the brewery one was huge, and also apparently very located out in the middle of nowhere. So, like, if you were going there, you were going there to go there, and not you know to do other things. It wasn't part of like a, a district where you'd kind of expect to be there, and. I think the other aspect of it that's interesting to me is that that Brewdog is the one that's buying them. I mean, Brewdog's been aggressively growing. I was amazed to find out that they had like over 80 bars around the world. I was like, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It seems like uh, every week I see something else that Brewdog has acquired. Yeah, well, and Brewdog's working with a, a pair of folks down here in L.A. to open up a place called uh, Crown and Hops, which is going to be a majority black-owned brewery targeting you know the black communities in South Los Angeles. And, you know, so very ambitious project there as well. And it just amazes me in part because the way I've always thought of Brewdog, aside from not really digging a lot of their beers, is Brewdog always kind of struck me as being like the Scottish Rats version of Stone. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And so to me, it's really interesting to see this particular transition happen because, well, there you go. And of course, Stone also had a couple of other interesting bits of news where like, their true craft uh, initiative that they that they said they were putting together to do well very much kind of legacy brewery the brewery was doing in the last story about Nikasi 
never actually came to fruition. You know, Greg had just announced it and they never actually went forward with it. So that thing, that thing fizzled. They lost, they never finished their hotel that they were, that they had talked about. So very interesting things happening over with Stone, particularly since they had those layoffs last year as well. That's one thing, but let's also then jump into the next story here and our final story for today, which is that sometimes, sometimes beer and charity doesn't mix as well as you think it should. Yeah. Remember that we had the, the fires up in, around Sierra Nevada, up in Chico, uh, last year. And they did that whole project, the Resilience Butte County uh, Proud IPA, where breweries around the country would agree to brew the recipe, which, by the way, also led to some very interesting tasting panels where you could go try like 10 different breweries' versions of that same beer and go, wow, it's really different, even though it's the same recipe-ish. Um, well, a bunch of breweries in Michigan actually went and did this because, hey, good idea. And this was you know, an effort that ultimately ended up raising like over $10 million around the country. But in Michigan, they got caught off guard because um, the breweries that that involved, were involved with it, including Bell's, for instance, right? So not small ones, ran afoul of the Michigan Liquor Control Commission because state law does not allow license holders, liquor license holders, which a brewery is, to donate basically or send proceeds of money to somebody who's not actually on the liquor license, Right. So they, they said here, at issue is a provision in the state's liquor code that notes a licensee shall not allow a person whose name does not appear on the license to use or benefit from the license. In other words, it would be considered a violation for a charity to directly receive profits from the various Michigan-made iterations of Resilience IPA. So because Sierra Nevada's charity is not part of the company and not part of the liquor license, the Michigan... Liquor Control Commission is basically like, hey, you're not really actually allowed to give them the money that you that you raised by selling the beer. Interesting. Yeah, it is, and it it sounds like the uh, Michigan Liquor Control Commission recognizes that this could be an issue, and uh, you know they may be doing something about it. I hope at least this will increase awareness about it and maybe get something going to allow for this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean the breweries themselves don't seem to be having a problem. Neither does the the brewery guild. Uh, right. Then they're all like, eh, "Okay, we got to work with we got to work with everybody to get a legislative fix in for this because uh, everybody seems to agree that well, that's an unintended consequence." Yeah, right. Well, and they say right here, it never occurred to us to check the MLCC codes for stuff like that. You want to donate or help somebody out when you do an event like that, so you just do it. And I I can understand that. Uh, something something kind of similar happened here after I went to beer camp at Sierra Nevada a few years ago. They donated a keg of beer for an event that uh, was put on here at a, a great local pub called the Beer Stein, and we wanted to raise money for our local food bank. And basically, the way that it had to be is that that money could not come directly from the sale of beer. The Beer Stein donated the money and then bought the keg of beer, which then they sold uh, to recoup that money that they made. So you know, it wasn't like a direct pass through. So that you know, there may be ways around it, but. At the very least, there appears to be no malice here from the Michigan Liquor Control Commission, and I hope that uh, things will get worked out so that stuff like this isn't this difficult in the future. Indeed, and so I think that's enough news. I need some more beer, and then we need to actually go talk about some brewing. That's right. We're going to take a quick break here while we finish up our beers, and we'll be right back coming to you from the brewery. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. The airlocks are burbling. The yeast are happy. There's beer in the making. <laughs> That's right. We're in the brewery, and I'm waxing poetical as uh, boy, really. As that, only, was, that was very impressive, man. Well, it's just something about stainless steel and and the smell of yeast. <laughs> so let's talk a couple of uh, brewing adventures that that have been happening. Uh, Denny, you got a new toy. Yeah, I did. I uh, I got a uh, Pico Z, which is kind of the upgrade, rebuild of the Zymatic. And uh, I did my first brew on it yesterday. Uh, I got to tell you, it's a very, very nice unit. It's smaller and lighter than the Zymatic. It's expandable. The basic unit is two and a half gallons like the Zymatic is, was. Uh, but you can add expansion bins to it so you can make up to 10 gallons at a time. You can do four different two and a half gallon batches if you're so inclined to do that. It is lighter and faster than the Zymatic. They use uh, different heaters and pumps for it. And I found that the temperatures are extremely stable. Uh, in the Zymatic, I would get a little bit of fluctuation during the mash. The, the Z, when I looked at my, uh, my graph with the mash temp, it was like just practically a flat line the whole time. Uh, getting up to temp, doing temp steps was much faster than it used to be. And, uh, Really important for me, the internet parts of it seem to be a lot improved. Uh, my, I brew in a detached garage and uh, have to use a, a signal extender to get there, and had, it can be a bit flaky. Uh, I did not have an internet dropout the whole time, and the display on the Z is much more informative, showing you exactly what's going on in terms of temperatures and pressures throughout the unit. Uh, I'm, I'm really liking it a lot so far. I've just done one brew on it. And, uh, when we get down to our quick tip, uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about uh, how I used it. Well, and so if I remember correctly, so the Zymatic used to have that robot, uh, robotic arm, right? Zzz, yes. Zzz, and it would drop things into specific ports. 
And you said that the Z no longer has that, right? No, it uses uh, what they call an octopus pump. I think that that's the right name for it. Uh, basically, it's something that they started using in the Pico C and S, where they have one pump with a bunch of different output hoses on it to deliver liquid to various sections of the unit. So there's no like rotating robotic arm anymore. And I, I think that's one of the reasons it's faster and quieter is that uh, this new pump is a much more efficient way to do that. There you go. And then still the same sort of size, right? Two and a half gallons. Two and a half gallons for the basic unit, but it does have the ability to be expanded in two and a half gallon increments. So I don't know if those are available yet, but they're coming soon. A lot of the the aim of this is like for small restaurants or stuff uh, that want to make their own beer. Uh, for instance, uh, up in Washington, there's a place called The Herb Farm, a multi-star restaurant uh, that does some amazing food. And they make all of their own beer using uh, Zymatic and now the Z. Hmm. And kind of interesting because I mean, you still have to get all the licenses and whatnot. Oh, 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 for sure, you know. Uh, but again, everything that they do at this particular place is like grown there, produced there. So, you know, for them, a you know, you couldn't open a brewery, of course, based around a Z. But for a a small restaurant, uh, it's going to work great. Well, there you go. And then I think the other fun thing that we saw in the brewing world was somebody actually did a water analysis that was, well, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, actually, it was more of a beer analysis, a finished beer analysis, and they tried to extrapolate the water, uh, but it was uh, Treehouse Julius. But it's a really fascinating article uh, analyzing the mineral content of uh, finished Treehouse Julius and quoting several other studies that have been done about the water and beers, uh, especially they talk about um, our good buddy Mike Tonsmeyer. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know exactly how accurate and useful it is, but it's going to be, it's really fascinating information. And one thing that Andrew does is that using uh, some work that Mike has done kind of extrapolates the starting water profile of Julius and, you know, like I said, who knows, but it's, uh, it, it seems totally possible that, uh, that what he's done is there. And the analysis is really interesting. It, it's a real fun article, and we'll post the link to it. Everybody talks that you want to have bigger amounts of chloride over the sulfate. And looking at the different analyses on, on the beer, or analyses, uh, the ratios are not always exactly more chloride, right? So the Julius one, for instance... 474 parts per million of sulfate versus 300 for the, the chloride, roughly. And, you know, other ones flip back and forth. So most of these beers, at least in the finished beer, they seem like, you know, there's more sulfate than there is chloride, which is goes kind of counterintuitive of what most people think. So just a really interesting read, I think, um, just to be able to kind of start with, you know, is there a better, uh, a better way to crack this nut? Yeah, and... One thing Andrew says that I really like is it's not the ratio, it's the numbers. And that's what I've always said about this. Uh, you know, you go 10 to 10 is not the same as 400 to 400, despite both being a one to one ratio. So that, you know, that's definitely something you need to keep in mind in this. One thing that I thought was very interesting was that uh, some of them had fairly high calcium numbers, which is interesting to me in terms of Martin Brungard's comments 
about how calcium really encourages yeast flocculation. And the higher the calcium you go, the more flocculent the yeast gets. So I think that that maybe is a uh, a way of looking at these beers and saying they do not get their haziness necessarily from yeast in suspension, but from the polyphenols from the hops. Yeah, and I think that's at least the better executed ver- uh, versions that is definitely true of. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. I think that's enough talking about brewing. I think it's time for us to go lounge and talk some more about beer. I agree completely. We've got a, a great interview with my good buddy, uh, Matt Van Wyck from Elson Brewing and Blending here in Eugene. You've heard me mention them many, many times. So sit back, relax. We're going to be right back after these messages and talk to Matt. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to break out the comfy chairs. That's right, it's Barker lounger time, it's lazy boy time, lounging jackets, and a snifter of a fine beer. And I can think of no finer beer to have than to have an ale song beer. Yeah, I have to agree with that, man. They probably make some of the best beers I have ever had the pleasure of putting into my mouth. Uh, I met the uh, the head brewer there, uh, founding head brewer, uh, Matt Van Wyck, a number of years ago when he worked at Oakshire. Uh, he's a great friend of the home brewing community here locally and just such a nice guy. So, uh, you know, we got a chance to kind of get to know each other. Matt uh, actually came out for a brew day at my place, and I want to really commend him for not totally freaking out when he saw how I brewed. Uh, so we've been wanting to get him on the program, and we finally did. And he's going to tell you the story of Ale Song, uh, how they make some of those beers that they're so luscious. And uh, Drew and I actually got a chance to taste a couple beers. It's always my favorite sort of interview when we get to taste a couple beers. Yeah, I agree. So uh, sit back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and check out this interview with Matt Van Wyck from Ale Song Brewing and Blending. 
We have Mr. Matt Van Wyk, the brewer and one of the founders of Alesong Brewing and Blending here in Eugene, on the line with us today. How you doing, Matt? Hi, Denny. Thanks for having me. Hey, man. It is a pleasure. Uh, you're on the road. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, pull over and talk to us. Hey, it's my pleasure to be on the show. I'm glad I could make the time. <laughs> yeah, well, we've only been trying this for like about nine months now. So <laughs> yes. I'm glad it finally worked. Yes, and boys and girls, we're pleased to remember, we may be drinking and podcasting, but Matt is not drinking and driving. <laughs> that is right. I've got, a, I've got a car full of beer, but it is not open. Okay, well, that, that's some real willpower, buddy. <laughs> okay so let's let's go back to the very beginning and i know the answers to a lot of these questions but i'm going to let you tell them to everybody else so how did you get into brewing yeah so so the the real kind of quick answer is um i was a science teacher uh, in the 90s and um in middle school and high school science and i discovered uh, better beer, uh, shortly after college and, and starting a job. Most of it was imports. And, um, then I discovered homebrewing and, uh, just got into it as a hobby. And after a few years of teaching and science and, and taking some brewery tours and doing some homebrewing, it really clicked that, uh, fermentation with science throughout, throughout my non-legal years and into college. No one really explained the whole fermentation and science link, which seems baffling. I was a pretty smart student and I, I didn't quite catch it. But once I did and, and caught the, the homebrew bug, I was making a lot of beer. Um, and pretty quickly, I started volunteering at a um, uh, small little brew pub in the western suburbs of Chicago just because I had summer break, winter break, spring break, all that stuff off. And I was just cleaning kegs for fun and a gallon of beer. Cleaning and, uh, kegs for fun. Those are words I've never heard spoken before. <laughs> you, you know what? It is not fun. But at the time, <laughs> when you have a, when you have a salary in another uh, uh, industry, uh, another profession, it's fun. Great. Um, so anyway, uh, basically, what happened is the brewer there that was letting me volunteer said, "You're working harder than my assistant. Would you like a job?" And and at the time in my life, without kids and things like that, I said, "Sure, let's try this." And uh, I went to Siebel real quick and got a little bit of education on there. And um, I worked at a few different breweries in the Chicago area up until about 2009, the longest being Flossmore Station uh, in the southern suburbs of um, Chicagoland. And then um, I moved out to Oregon to work for a brewery called Oakshire, which uh, Denny's very familiar with. Uh Um, I was uh, employee number five and the brewmaster for almost seven years. Um, and so all this little fast forward story started in 2001 and I've been a professional brewer for, uh, what, 18 years now. Wow. Wow. So, uh, how did the transition from Oakshire to founding Alesong happen? Well, that was interesting because, uh, you know, I started at Oakshire, uh, in about the third year, two and a half or three years in, and you know, we were a small brewery, uh, production brewery of about a thousand barrels a year. Grew that up to about 10,000 barrels a year. And, you know, we were doing the standard um, flagships and seasonals and IPAs and all that stuff. And uh, But I got to do um, be the lead on all the specialty beers, the one-off beers, and start a barrel-age program. We started that right away and um, started doing some barrel-aging. But as you can expect from any brewery that's 1,000 barrels growing to 10,000 barrels in the mid-2000s, 
Um, the barrel age stuff often gets uh, sort of put on the back burner while the cans of IPA are rolling off the line. And, and that was fine because it was a great brewery and a great job. And, and like I said, I did it for about seven years. And, um, but I was really passionate about making fun beers. You know, at Oakshire, we released a new beer every Tuesday in our tasting room that opened in 2012. And, and uh, I had a real passion for learning more about barrel-aged beers. And um, we had hired right out of college, as a, actually while in college, an intern named Brian Coombs, who was a chemistry student um, and is now one of my two business partners at Ailsong. Um, after graduation, he had to go do a commitment to the, to the military. He paid for his school. Um, but when he came back, he had already caught the craft ring bug and came on board as our QC, uh, did some packaging stuff, did some seller stuff but was really taking care of the barrels for me when we shut down the busy packaging brewery. And I asked him to do some work for us kind of on the second shift, cause that was his shift. And, uh, anyway, the, the long and short of it is he said, Hey Matt, let's, uh, let's start a brewery that's only barrel aged where we just do everything in Oak. And after telling him he was crazy for several, uh, months <laughs> or, or years, probably and that'll never work. Uh, well, he talked me into it. And along with his brother, Doug, who, uh, we started Ale Song. I left Oakshire in 2015, and uh, we got things rolling in 2016 at Ale Song. And, and man, you got rolling fast because in six months you guys were bringing home a gold medal from GABF. Yeah, that was that was great. About our, I don't know, third or fourth batch of beer, um, uh, which you know was about yeah, like you said, five or six months into the into the um, business, we won a gold in the Brett beer category at GABF and. Um, I've been fortunate to win, um, a few GABF medals, like 15 or 16 in my career, which it's a long career, but <laughs> that's more than I, a few, man. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a lot easier, but what I realized is it's really hard these days to win because there's so many, so much great beer, and so many breweries. Um, and you know, we won like, I think two during my career at Oakshire, which I was very proud of. Um, but we won gold so quickly and then that beer was called Touch of Bread, a Brett Saison, uh, Agent Oak, and then Dry Hop. And subsequently, we have won the last three years a medal in the Brett beer category with our Touch of Bread series. Um, and I think we're up to five GABF medals in our first three years or six. I can't remember. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it's, so, yeah. Just a small I'm, rate. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. It's not... You know, it's not the defining moment. Uh, you know, my business is still in business after three years. That's what I'm proud yeah, of. Yeah, right, man. I know. And uh, believe me, it's one of my favorite places to go. I'm going to be heading out to the tasting room this Monday, as a matter of fact. Awesome. So you guys have kind of a unique approach in that you don't really have your own brewing system, right? You brew on other people's systems? Right. We do. We mainly brew at Block 15 in Corvallis. Um, it's about a 40-minute drive north from uh, Eugene, northwest, uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting to do this. We're not the only ones doing it. We certainly stole it from some other brewery friends around, but um, because we're a very small brewery focused on barreling and, and the yeast and bacteria and all the stuff we add later than the fruit and, and, and what we do uh, at the end of the process, um, making the word is something that we weren't sure we wanted to invest all the money into a brew system. And so it's very expensive if you're not using that brew system over and over and over. And the main way to afford it is either go way smaller than you should, and then you pay for a lot of labor, or go way bigger than you should, and then you just have debt and you don't make many batches of beer. Um, 
what we did is found a partner who is great friends of ours who allow us to come into the brewery and I'm, I'm the brewmaster at our company. And so I, I do the hot side. Um, and I just travel up with our grain and hops. Um, it's a day they're not brewing. I rent the brew house. It's no different than a chef, um, renting a commissary kitchen. Um, we pull the wort out of, uh, their heat exchanger in totes and then roll that down the, the road to our brewery where we ferment in stainless. Um, and then we're just like any other brewery, um, except for we also pull it out after primary into oak for three months to three years, depending on what we're making. So everything goes into oak. Yes. We, when we started the business, we, uh, we released beers four times a year, uh, a little bit like a, a winery does, uh, where you have these quarterly releases and we have a club. And we were making one beer per quarter that was non-barrel-aged. So we had a, saison, a honey saison, and we had a goza, and we had a double, and we had a, um, a quad. They were all, a lot of Belgian-inspired, some German-inspired. What we called them were as, um, instant gratification beers. We, you know, our <laughs> beers are packaged in cork and cage or wax dip. Um, they, they have a great shelf life, and so people want to put them on their shelf and hold them until Thanksgiving and whatever, and we would just assume they drank them, but they can be aged. And so people thought, well, I want a beer I can drink now. And once we opened our tasting room a year after our business started, we're like, well, we need something that we can pour in a glass, a full glass, and, and not just give them sips of a 15% bourbon barrel-aged barley wine. And so we did that for a while, uh, but in the last year we have transitioned. And the reason is, um, you know, it was a business thing. Um, we we want to do what we do best. Um, we knew we could have guest beers in our tasting room. And we really wanted to focus on, on our core competency, which is making barrel-aged beer. And so uh, that's what we do right now. Everything is aged in either wine barrels or some sort of spirits barrels, bourbon, gin, tequila, rum, whatever we can find. And one other thing you guys do differently is your tasting room is like nowhere near town. You're like out in the middle of the country, and it's a beautiful location, which is one of the reasons I love coming out there so often. But man, that's a that's a real leap of faith. Uh, you know, were you guys like scared to death when you decided to do that? Well, yes, we were, <laughs> and and in in some ways we still are. You know, we're 20 miles outside of a. I don't know what, 150,000, um, uh, person town, city, small college town. Um, so, so it's a challenge. It's not like it's just, you can pop over for a beer. Um, but because we have a mindset of, you know, we're not a farmhouse brewery, but we're like that out in the country. We're not a Belgian brewery, but we make a lot of those beers. And, and so, you know, the history of Belgian brewing and, and, and centuries ago, people just, had breweries out in the country and you used the stuff you grew and and that was not only romantic but it was delicious and we also have a little bit of a a look and feel and some of our beers are influenced by wineries and so if we're going to use wine grapes in our beer and we're going to age everything in in Oregon wine barrels we wanted to be out there in wine country and if you think to the times you visited a winery where beautiful scenery we have a great patio with a beautiful valley view right by king estate and you sit on that that patio on the picnic table it just seems like the beer tastes better the conversation with your partner is better you know you just have a good time because you can leave the city and the busyness away back where where you left and that's kind of the feel we were trying to build um you know beer is experiential and we wanted to build an experience that our our customers could come and and enjoy in that way and uh but it's been tough 
being that far out because some people don't want to make the journey, especially if you've been drinking. Um, but I will say that when you make that trip, and Denny, you know, because oh, we're yeah. fortunate to have you come in, you end up, each customer spends a little more. You take some bottles home with you. Um, you stay a little longer because you're not just going to pop back tomorrow. Right, right. So that That's beneficial for us. And most importantly, Denny remembers to pick up some bottles to send to me. <laughs> yes, he does. Good yeah. job, Denny. Every time I head out there, Drew reminds me that uh, he's sitting in L.A. I don't feel quite so bad now that I know that he can get it. Uh, you mentioned being right next to King Estates Winery, and that has kind of like resulted in uh, some partnerships, collaborations. Yeah, they've been a great neighbor to us, and we've been a great neighbor to them. And, and we end up having, we have quite a few winery uh, friends out there. Um, in fact, Brian, uh, one of the two business partners, um, he worked at King Estate, which is our neighbor, um, for one harvest and a little bit more while we got the uh, brewery up and running. And that was just to learn more of how vintners are using barrels and oak and taking care of them. Because we knew we were going to have such a focus on oak. Um, brewers know a lot, but many of us are just kind of, we're young and we're uh, in the, as an industry still. And we're doing what someone else told us and we're doing experiments and small. We knew there was an industry where we could gain a lot of knowledge. So he went and went to work for them. And subsequently, we have a great relationship with them. We buy barrels from them. We bought grapes from them. They grow a bunch of fruit on their property that they can't use in their restaurant, all in the restaurant. So we bought blueberries and, and other fruit from them, and it's just a great partnership um, to be next to them. We've even used their wine, small wine press before to press uh, grape juice to use in our beers. That's, that is so cool, man. That's that's really great that things worked out like that. Yeah, and in fact, Brian also just went to the Oregon Wine Symposium, and, and we have great conferences in the craft beer industry, but he said, Oh my gosh, this was the best conference I ever went to. Um, our label supplier was there, our bottle supplier was there, our cork and cage supplier was there. He went to some things about direct to consumer sales because that's what the wine industry does. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of parallels in our business, um, uh, with wineries and how they operate their business. And that's been successful. And, and the real reason is we had to differentiate ourselves. You guys know there's 7,000 breweries in this country, um, to go into an industrial, park and roll up a garage door and make a IPA and then go, Oh shoot, we got to make hazy IPAs and just <laughs> chase everyone. Uh, I was just listening to a podcast on the way, uh, my trip here and, uh, a brewer in California said, Hey guys, get off Instagram, make the beers you want to make and love and, you know, forge your own path. And, and that's just great advice. I, it is, man. And I'm glad to hear people kind of coming back around to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, uh, but, Still maintaining a sense of playfulness, which is one of the things I love in the craft beer industry. Absolutely, absolutely. You you, you can you can be very playful and make all kinds of crazy things, um, but make the things that you love. You know, do it because you want to do it, not because someone said you had to throw this in a beer and put it on Instagram. Right, right. Speaking well, of so beer, I think that leads. I, I think it's about, I think it's about time for us to have a beer, don't you, Drew? Yeah, I do. So uh, why don't uh, why don't you start? And uh, you've got the French seventy five. I've yeah, got something different. I'm just but I'm, I'm just opening it now. Uh, here goes the cage and the cork. Oh yeah. Okay, and a little pour. Stop there because we have to work this afternoon. 
Well, and so just to lay the groundwork uh, for people, French 75 is a classic cocktail uh, from, I think, the 20s. Uh, it's kind of basically a Tom Collins, but you substitute out the club soda with uh, champagne. So lemon, gin, sugar, and then champagne. But now in beer form here, so... Yeah, Matt, would you, why don't you talk about how you make this beer and what inspired yeah. it? We have a few. Well, Drew just explained what inspired it. It is the French 75 cocktail, and um, we have a few cocktail-inspired beers we've made, um, and they're really fun to play with when you sort of try to mimic some of the flavors you get in a cocktail. Um, and it's not always easy uh, when you have Brett fermentation because, you know, that sugar cube you muddle into the fruit doesn't always work if it's cocktails like that. But we wanted to make something like that. We made a Brett Saison um, and aged it in oak, um, we uh, used lemon peel, and that was sort of after aging. We kind of hung it in bags in the barrels um, to get that real citrusy note to it. Um, we also tried to carbonate this one a little higher, um, sort of mimic the champagne that Drew was talking about. Um, so essentially, it, oh, and then I said French oak, but I meant gin barrels that were formerly uh, wine barrels. Um, we, we, get, um, we get Old Tom gin from uh, barrels from Ransom Distillery. It's an Oregon uh, distillery. They also have a winery associated with their company. And it's just a wonderful Old Tom gin. And uh, these barrels, the, the botanicals, the oils in the botanicals are just really soaked into that wood. And gin barrels are hard to come by because most gin is just done in stainless uh, with the botanicals. Um, and we're able to source these and age the beer in it. So gin barrel aged, Brett Saison. Uh, later dosed with lemon peel and then uh, bottle conditioned a little higher for that spritziness. Um, and I was mentioning to the guys that uh, this just won gold medal at the Oregon Beer Awards, an all-Oregon competition uh, in the experimental category. You know, I'm I'm a real gin fanatic, and this may be my idea of a perfect beer because all, all those you. gin characteristics come through. The lemon peel is so nice, giving it both the fruit and a little bit of cut through the rest of the beer. The carbonation level, like you mentioned, is up there, and it just it makes it lively and and really brings those flavors out. Yeah, thank you. I, I, we really like this one too. Um, it, it's not only refreshing and it's light and dry, but it's also complex. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I was mentioning, you're, you're missing that maybe that sugar cube that goes into most classic uh, uh, French seventy five recipes. Um, but you know, Brett's going to eat that, so I'm not sure what sweetness we can add to it. But but there is some perceived sweetness in there. I was just um, going to say, man, I am definitely getting a little bit of sweetness, and I don't know if it's uh, you know from the malt or if it's from the lemon or whatever. But I mean, you know, the balance is just perfect. Oh, I said the B word. <laughs> well, that's okay that's okay we like that <laughs> well i was gonna say so that brings up the you know my favorite question to ask brewers which is can you describe what your your brewing philosophy is while admitting the word balance while admitting the word balance boy you know that is tough yeah i guess what you're saying is everyone uses the word balance yeah <laughs> Most people, when we ask them this question, just come up with every synonym in the world for balance. I know. So. Boy, that, that's, that is really tough, and I, I should have prepared myself for that. But, you know, I tell you what, you know, Denny, you know some of the beers I've made at my previous job and, and now at Alesong, and we make some, some big, bold bourbon barrel-aged beers, and, and we've made some pretty boozy rum barrel-aged beers, and we're starting to make more adjunct sort of, I hate the word pastry stouts, but let's just call them big bourbon barrel-aged imperial stouts. Um, 
so we make those things. Um, but no matter what, I want you to be able to drink a beer and enjoy all the elements and make sure one doesn't mask the other <laughs> and, uh, and makes you want to drink, uh, you know, another sip. I mean, you can, there's so many beers on the market where you can, uh, you drink a sip of it, and I, I've judged several competitions, GBF, World Beer Cup, and some local things here in Oregon. Um, man, that one sip or four ounces or whatever you have in your sample is delicious, but there's no chance I'm ordering it in, in a bar and drinking a full glass of it. And so um, I will not say the word you don't want me to say, but it's got <laughs> to be finishable uh, in a larger quantity, and, and uh, unique, exciting beers are what we try to make but make sure you can finish the full glass. How's that? That's, that's a great description, man. And that's very much in line with, uh, with what I'm thinking. So uh, why don't we go ahead and try the other beers? Yeah, well. yeah. Drew has a Kentucky kilt. And Matt, why don't you talk about that one a bit? Yeah, while he opens that, um, that is a uh, Scotch ale we brewed and aged in, in bourbon barrels. Um, uh, Brian and I, when we worked at Oakshire, had made a, a beer called... Uh, Bourbon Barrel Aged Badger, I think it was called. And uh, it was like this, a scotch ale, strong scotch ale, um, aged in bourbon barrels. And we nitrogenated the whole batch, which I think when you have those um, big, bold, yet creamy, sort of malty, uh, sweet flavors, marrying up the vanilla and and, and the bourbon and the coconut and all those things. And then you throw some nitro on it where you're taking away the prickly carbonation of it. um, It's just like slides down smoothly. Um, so we wanted to recreate something like that. Now, the one that Drew has is, you know, carbonated like normal. Um, it also was a little smaller than a Scotch ale. Uh, maybe you'd call it a Scottish ale or something like that. But there's really nothing added. It was just a straightforward, strong malty beer, uh, aged in bourbon barrels, and um, uh, which we do as well as, as wild and sour and farmhouse style of beers. Um, and we actually just brewed that one again a week ago, and it is due out uh, sometime next winter. Oh, great, great. Okay, um, excuse me, excuse me, I'm, uh, I'm having a moment here. <laughs> no, so, I mean, I'm, I'm tasting this, and yeah, I get the I get the scotch ale. The bottle says 9.5 on this batch, so I mean, that's yep. that's still a, a good, strong beer to, in my mind. What I'm, what I'm really digging on this is a lot of times you'll have a bourbon bale beer, and it goes ham with the bourbon level. Mm, like, right. we, we, we turned the bourbon up to 11 and, <laughs> and here i mean yeah you get the bourbon but it's not it's not overriding it's not running a muck over the top of the beer the you get that malt aroma there as well as the the bourbon you get that vanilla from the barrel and the bourbon and everything else it's just i'm again not using the word balance the nice thing is that this is restrained right you know, i well, get i you. get so yeah, and you get so many of these bourbon barrel beers where they're just hot. They, they feel yep. like somebody just made you a boilermaker, and this is well, not we, the case. We treat the barrels like an ingredient. You know, you they always talk about the main four ingredients in, in making beer, but we just say we've got a fifth ingredient, and that is is the barrel. And so I treat it in such where we want to have that be, you know, enhance certain flavors or complement certain flavors, and... Mm-hmm. Um, We'll we'll blend things in a way that we think is is more drinkable. Uh, we had a quad that was in rum barrels, and the rum barrels were just so boozy and hot. And you know, we didn't do a barrel strength version of it. We kind of wanted to to see if people could handle it, but it just jacked up the alcohol. And it was like you were describing, where you're like, "Ugh, that's just so much rum." 
we had to make a new batch. We blended it 40% barrel, rum barrel aged and 60% non, and still people thought it was a little bit too hot. And after it's been in the bottle for over a year now, and people are starting to say, oh, it's kind of smoothing out. So we, that we was did, the four pirates? Try. That was the four pirates, yes. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty interesting beer. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like I said, I love the restraint on it because, again, it does it gets you right into that place where you're ready to go for that next sip, and you're actually really desirous of that of that next sip. So, kudos. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that has always impressed me about all of your beers is that the flavors enhance each other as opposed to one of them taking over and and making that beer defined by that particular flavor. Uh, right. You know, the, the other piece of my philosophy is I think of beer like like a chef does food, and no one would put so much hot sauce in that burns your mouth or so much lemon that you, you can't speak after you take a, a bite. It's got to be about... Here comes the word. Yeah, in some in some aspect, it has to be balanced, no matter how crazy experimental your beer is. So, have you guys ever had an idea for a beer that you didn't get around to brewing or didn't work out the way you hoped it would? Uh, let's see. Uh, you just had the, the story that you mentioned about four, uh, four pirates. Yeah, that, uh, that certainly uh, didn't turn out. It was just way too hot, way too boozy. Wasn't we wouldn't have been proud of that at all had we just bottled it up. And and I'm I'm sort of of the um, opinion that even though I want you know that beer to be drinkable, if you buy a bourbon barrel aged beer in a nice package for a lot of dollars, you got to know it's bourbon barrel aged. So sometimes, Drew, like you were mentioning, it's not overpowering, which is great. But I don't want anyone to go. Oh, you're like one of the big breweries who waters it down to twenty percent barrel aged. Um, so I'm I'm cognizant of that, and so I'm, uh, we don't want to barrel it, blend it down too much. But there's a balance between enjoyable and and overdone. Well, man, I, I have to say that I think that uh, your perception of flavors is one of the things that really makes these beers work because you know how they go together and in what proportions and. Uh, you know, I, it's like, I don't think you guys could make a bad beer if you tried. Well, you know, practice makes perfect, Denny, and that's how you make such great beers as well, because uh, you, you spend enough time doing it and practicing and drinking, you uh, you figure it out. Wow, that's very kind of you, man. Matt, Matt, you do know that his ego is already big enough, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know what? As long as that man keeps driving to my tasting room, I'm going to keep feeding it. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, just so for listeners who can't get to Eugene and can't get to the tasting room, where where are, is the beer distributed? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. We're we're mostly in Oregon. We try to sell a lot at our tasting room, but we do distribute all the way up to Seattle and Bellingham four times a year. We drive up ourselves because we can self distribute. Uh, we do have a distributor in the Bay Area that carries some beer, and in Denver, um, and then. Um, uh, we've sent a little bit of other places, but it's really just not significant that you'd be able to find it. But I will tell you very importantly that we have a beer club that is uh, getting pretty robust and we can ship anywhere in the state of Oregon legally. And then we have the ability to get beer to about 18 to 20 states. Uh, it's along with a partnership with Tavor that's based up in Washington. Um, so if you go to alesongbrewing.com and slash join, or there's a button there for joining our club, you can read all about the benefits of being in our club, and four times a year, out-of-state people in those states that's legal to get to can get eight bottles of our beer, uh, and California is one of those. So if you don't live in the, the Bay Area and see it, um, you could join our club and have eight bottles shipped to your house four times a year. 
Uh, and Angelinos, I have seen Ale Song over at Ramirez over in Boyle Heights. So there you go. Yeah, and Fantastic. yep, and I tell all you beer geeks out there that you will be doing yourself a real favor by trying this stuff. It is uh, some of the most delicious beer that you will ever have the honor to put through your lips. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, you know, and, and thanks for starting such a killer brewery. Hey, it's my pleasure, and thank you guys for letting me come on and tell tell people about it. Well, man, it, it's our pleasure also. Uh, if you're around uh, the tasting room on Monday, I'll see you there, and if not, then I'll see you the next time I see you. Okay, we'll see you on Monday. All right, bye-bye. Thanks, guys. So, dude, what do you think of the Ale Song story? I thought it was great. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, an interesting way of saying, uh, well, we recognize our strengths, and so let's play with those as opposed to needing all the pretty plumbing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and what I think was great was the combination of people, because, you know, we know it takes great people to make great beer. And they have, you know, between Matt and the uh, the two brothers, Doug and Brian, they have a wealth of talents that apply directly to what they're doing and really show up in the quality of the product that they're making. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you guys get a chance, if you are in one of those limited areas where some Ale Song beers show up, and like I said, uh, Ramirez Liquor over in Boyle Heights here in Los Angeles has bottles of them, uh, for instance, which was kind of far afield, and I know it's even showed up in Tampa. Uh, by all means, go and do yourself a favor. Grab a bottle or two. You'll really appreciate it. Especially the French 75, huh? Well, I mean, come on. I mean. <laughs> a Saison aged in a gin barrel with lemon peel? How can that be bad? Yeah, a gin-flavored Saison based after a classic cocktail. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah that's, pre that's pretty much like the straight-up definition of somebody, you know, here, stick it in my veins, please. Right. So find yourself some Ale Song beer if you can. Your mouth will dance and thank you for it. So we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be wrapping up the show with some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's time to wrap things up and let everybody get on with their day. And we're going to do that by starting with a few questions. Uh, the first one comes in from David Scheel of Cedar Falls, Iowa. Hey, I know where that is. I used to hang out in that area. David says, I always look forward to your Q&A podcast. I always learn something to become a better home brewer. Wow, I, I'm surprised, but I'm glad. Anyway, a few years ago, I brewed a Cezanne that made the finals of the National Homebrew Competition. The driving force behind that beer was the White Labs WLP 585 Belgian Cezanne 3 Ale Yeast. White Labs does not produce that yeast strain anymore. Do you know of a similar strain that's available for purchase? Well, you know, one of us knows, and it ain't me. 
Uh, first, uh, to David, no, sorry. There is no exact equivalent that I've been able to get my hands on. So White Labs discontinued because I guess apparently not enough people ordered it. And when I talked to them about it, they said the yeast was uh, particularly painful to propagate. So it wasn't a, a well-behaved yeast, which is unfortunate because it gave such great pear and cinnamon and, and slightly yogurty tones to a beer. So I can totally see why it would actually end up uh, working out so well for you as, as a um, as a Saison. I remember when I did my first Saison talk at the San Diego conference, I dropped like 14 tastes in uh, the hour, which was uh, yeah, sort of insane. I remember that. Oh, man, insane is hardly the word for it. Yeah, the poor pores were just racing. Yeah. And the White Labs 3, that, that Saison 3, the 585, ended up being one of the crowd favorites because it was just so interesting. So, yeah, there's no direct equivalent that I've been able to locate. And to what I would actually sub in is I would either sub in the uh, Yeast Bay's Wallonian 2 or East Coast uh, Yeast EC8 Saison Brasserie. Neither of them is a perfect match. Uh, both of them are a little bit more painful to get your hands on, but I think those are both uh, interesting use in their own right, and they'll get you kind of in the ballpark. Ta-da. Ta-da, indeed. And then our next question comes in from Keith Case. He says, I was hoping that you could weigh in on an issue I'm having. I seem to have a persistent off flavor in my beer, regardless of what I do. It persists in Pilsner-based beers and two-row beers. I've used US05, London 3, 3470, 3711, and it's always there. I have fermented in buckets and in glass carboys. I ferment in a temperature-controlled chamber and in my ambient basement. I've used DME. I've mashed my own grain. I have filtered my water and brewed from the tap. I've been trying to narrow down all the variables, but I can't shake it. For some reason, that just sort of got into the rhythm of a Dr. Seuss poem. <laughs> it does. I'm not sure I would describe it as an off flavor. At least it doesn't fit any of the descriptions I've read of common issues, but it's still a flavor I don't like and rarely taste in the commercial beers I enjoy. It's an aroma that I can only really smell when I breathe out through my nose after swallowing my homebrew, so retronasal. It's kind of malty, but not like a good Oktoberfest. It's basically not a clean or crisp flavor. The flavor has slowly decreased over the life of the APA in my keg, but it's still there to some degree. Is there any reason to wait longer to bottle slash keg my homebrew to hope that a longer fermentation might clean up this off flavor? I guess there's only one way to find out. Can you think of any other way to turn the, the screws on my process to try and track it down? Have you encountered this before? Does it sound familiar? I'm a little at my wit's end and pretty close to giving up because I am not making beer I want to drink. Any help would be appreciated. Thanks. Boy, this is like I was saying earlier. This is this is a really, really difficult kind of thing to diagnose without actually having that beer in front of us to taste. Um and, or a better description of the off flavor. But I'm going to say that based on the fact he says it's kind of malty, but not like a good Oktoberfest, it's basically not a clean or crisp flavor. Um, I would say my first guess would be oxidation. And I know we've been using that to answer a lot of problems recently, but it, it can be a problem. The only thing that really throws me from that is that Keith says the flavor has slowly decreased over the life of the APA in my keg, but still there to some degree. If it was oxidation, I would expect it to be getting worse and more prominent, not mm -hmm. kind of fading away. I mean, unless Keith is just kind of getting used to the flavor. Um, it's really tough, Keith. There's, there's really, 
nothing else we can do but just make that kind of wild ass guess because we don't have the beer here and there are so many things it could possibly be and without tasting the beer it's real real difficult to narrow it down you got any ideas other than oxidation which doesn't make sense yeah the 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 decreasing over time piece kind of throws the oxidation one for a loop yeah um I mean, to me, given that he's saying it decreases over time, I mean, yeah, assuming that it's not satiation, right? So he's he's not, you know, sort of becoming uh, inured to it. Uh, yeast health, uh, fermentation, you know, like like maybe there, maybe it's an incomplete fermentation in a way, and it just hasn't cleaned cleaned up after itself. Because like when I first read this, I I was thinking, well, it sounds like one of those sort of one of those sort of phenolic characters that you can get. Yeah, where where it just kind of ends up like a real low level one. Except that and, he doesn't say anything it, about that. He says it's it's kind of malty, you know. It's like I know, but uh, but I've uh, but I've 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 tasted some things where the beer just kind of feels sickly sweet, and it ends up going away over time. And I've always I've always thought it, it, because it usually comes to my mind with a spicy tone to it that it was somehow a phenolic slash fermentation character. Yeah, uh, and then and then you get reduction over time. But I will say, yeah, this one's this one's a bit confusing because I mean, he, Keith has done a lot of things that I would uh, that I would suggest doing, you know, right. changing up different parts of the process. Um, because he's even changed the water, which would be another thing that I would think about. I would never recommend brewing from the tap, but um, yeah, I I still that makes me my gut is a fermentation issue, but of course. There's a couple of things that we can do to proceed from here. Uh, Keith, one, you can get back in contact with us and send us a sample of one of these beers that you're having problems with, and we can taste it and see if we can narrow it down. And of course, listeners, as was proved by today's epic feedback session, you guys have no problems telling us where we're lost and wrong. So why don't you guys chime in and, and help us out? What could possibly be going wrong with Keith's beer? That's right. You guys can make wild-ass guesses as well as we can, so let's have some. Oh, there we go. All right. Last question for this week. All right. This one comes from Derek Beam via email. He says, I'm a big fan of the show and had a question about your Martzen episode. If I recall correctly, you mentioned that your version of the style is a 70-30 split of Munich to Pilsner. What love bond is the Munich? I always use Weirman Light Munich unless I otherwise specify that's the Weirman type one. So it's the Munich that's between, you know, say five to seven level bond. And I, I take a slightly different approach. Uh, I use a lighter Munich like that. If I'm going more for the fest beer style, if I'm going more for the traditional, uh, Oktoberfest or Martzen, I prefer something more in the, the 10 or 12 level bond Munich range. At some point in time, it becomes splitting hairs, but yes, use a good Munich. Of course it does. Yes. Find a Munich you like and use it. Yeah. And in the case of Munich malts, I've, Almost invariably preferred the ones that are actually from Germany. Yeah, I I do too. Although you know, I have discovered uh, when I was making my American style alt beer, I developed a real fondness for the Great Western Dark Munich malt for it. But uh, for pretty much anything continental, uh, I usually go for like a best Munich. That's my preference over Weirman. Uh, and then, of course, now I use a, a lot of uh, Mecca grade Metolius, which is kind of their version of a dark Munich. Yep. All right. That's our questions. There's some of our answers and our call for help as well. I think it's time for us to get out of here. And of course, before we get out of here, we got to give you a quick tip. Okay. This quick tip comes from my recent brewing experience with my Z. And what I want to tell you is 
use your equipment mindfully. Think about what it's best at and put different pieces together to make a good brewing system uh, all in one. Uh, for instance, with the Z, the boiling vessel is a corny keg, a five-gallon corny keg. So I was looking around, and a lot of times I'll take the beer when it's done uh, brewing, and I dump it into a bucket and ferment that in my chest freezer. This time I was uh, considering maybe dumping the beer into the Grainfather Conical and fermenting it in there. And I realized that I had uh, a jaded corny pillar sitting there, which is a chiller meant exactly for batches made on the Z or Zymatic, fits inside a corny keg, and the height is adjusted to the size of the batch. And I also realized that I had my Brew Jacket Immersion Pro with a corny lid drilled out for the rod to go through. So I decided that the easiest thing to do would be just leave that beer in the corny, chill it down with the uh, jaded corny pillar, which just took a few minutes to do based on the fact it was a small batch, a very efficient chiller, and my water this time of year is very cold. And then just stick the Brew Jacket Immersion Pro in through the corny lid and set it in the corner to ferment. And I was thrilled with how well those pieces of equipment work together. And I'm, you know, I'm, that's not an earth-shattering kind of thing. I'm sure that a lot of you think of things like that. But a lot of people also just kind of tend to go out and buy a piece of equipment because it's cool without thinking about how to integrate that into their entire system. So look around at your equipment, use what's going to work best for any given situation and work together to kind of form a synergy. I was going to say, and sometimes, you know, yeah, look for novel ways to use your equipment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So definitely. So now not everybody's going to have a, basically a homebrew warehouse in their garage like I do. But on the other hand, I know a lot of you have a lot of equipment sitting around out there that you've collected through the years. So think about unique ways to use it to make a real good system. Absolutely. And of course, now we have to leave you with something other than beer because life is not always just about the suds. Sometimes it's about, well, entertainment for the mind. And uh, this week I'm going to go back to a book selection. And this was a book I got for Christmas and I've been really enjoying it as I've been reading about 50 other things. And it's a book called uh, The Liberator by Alex Kershaw. It's about a U.S. Army officer in World War II uh, by the name of Felix Sparks. And he commanded from the invasion of Sicily all the way through Italy into France and fighting the SS in the, in the mountains, which, boy, and uh, really kind of entered in history because he was the U.S. Army officer who liberated Dachau. And so the book also very, very heavily covers his experiences in Dachau and how for a little bit of time, you know, kind of things ended up happening in Dachau that, you know, we don't normally tend to think of with U.S. Army troops. Um, and then he ended up the war in Munich and eventually went on to live a very, very full life uh, doing lots of other things, eventually became a colonel. And it's just a really fascinating story, again, of that sort of generation that had to step up and, well, do what's right and punch a Nazi in the face. <laughs> so I highly recommend that you guys uh, read that. It's, it is The Liberator by Alex Kershaw. And now it's time for us to get the heck out of here. Thanks a lot for listening to the latest episode of Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. 
I'm on a bunch of different beer forums, uh, mainly the AHA discussion forum. Drew, you can find on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just even rant and rave, you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave a voicemail or send a text to 626-765-1AL. Remember to include your name. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.